Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, December 9th, we are studying Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Two Judean exiles mourning their sin in Babylon, the prophet Isaiah speaks words of comfort as their God comes with his might to save. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Sean Smith. Pastor Smith serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in West Point, Illinois, and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Wine Hill, Illinois. You'll also recognize his voice as the host of Concord Matters here on KFUO. Pastor Smith, welcome back to Sharp Ryan. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. So we're in the book of Isaiah yet again in this series on Isaiah in the, excuse me, on Advent in the prophets. And Isaiah shows up a lot because he is an Advent preacher in many respects. We're bouncing around a little bit in the book though. So help us get our bearings here. What do we know about Isaiah and his ministry and his book as a whole, as we prepare to look at part of chapter 40 today? Yeah, Isaiah really is a a great Advent prophet. And what we're going to look at today is probably one of the most well-known sections, and there's there's very different reasons for that. Um, but uh, as we take a look at the whole context of Isaiah, we remember that the, Isaiah is called to minister to the southern kingdom of Israel. Remember, there was a split, the northern kingdom, which becomes called Israel, and they're taken off into exile. Uh, and then there's the southern kingdom, uh, which is called Judah. And Isaiah is really specifically the prophet to Judah. And that's laid out right in the very first verse of the book. It states that Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah or Azariah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. These are kings of Judah. And so Isaiah is called to minister to them. And Isaiah is, in a lot of ways, really like a miniature Bible in itself. A lot of commentators have pointed to this and uh, just very briefly kind of laying that out, the first 39 chapters are much like the first 39 books of the Old Testament, and uh, in that they are filled with judgment upon the immorality and idolatry of mankind. And so this definitely sounds the message of judgment. Judah has sinned and strayed from God. The surrounding nations around them have sinned, and they've begun making alignments with them. Uh, Judah has and really the whole earth as sinned, of course, as we get all the way in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, but then uh, judgment has to come upon that. God cannot abide by sin. And so the judgment comes, and Isaiah has been prophesying that, this coming judgment in those first 39 chapters. And so now then the, tw- the final 27 chapters are like the 27 books of the New Testament. They declare a message of hope and proclaim salvation. And that's where we're going to be picking up today. It's that beginning of that second book, if you will, that second part of Isaiah. And it's going to prophesy the coming of God's servant. uh, As as we look in the New Testament, of course, that is the Messiah, the Savior of the nations. And so Isaiah really is, his name actually means Yahweh is salvation. Remember Yahweh, the personal name of God. So God is our salvation or God saves. And so the name Isaiah is also really an excellent summary of the contents of the book of Isaiah, even as Isaiah itself is an excellent summary of all of scripture. And so Isaiah, like all of scripture, speaks in judgment and hope, or we might also use the terms law and gospel. And I'm certainly not saying that the Old Testament is only law and the New Testament is only gospel. I'm not making that distinction here uh, because clearly Isaiah itself is speaking in law and gospel. All of God's word speaks in law and gospel. But perhaps another way to look at this then is also uh, that that judgment, hope paradigm, law, gospel paradigm. Uh, In the story of redemption or salvation, I I also like to use this in my catechesis uh, with, uh, with students of preparation and fulfillment. And so God prepares his people for salvation by first prophesying to them 
the coming of judgment, speaking his judgment upon sin. Uh, and then even in their experience during the time of judgment, he directs their hope to a coming savior. That's also part of the prophetic work, uh, which is then brought out in the fulfillment. And so thus Isaiah, especially in chapter 40, it's very fitting um, that uh, we commonly see this text come, as you said, in the season of Advent, uh, following the historic one-year lectionary, which I use in my dual parish. Uh, it comes on the third Sunday in Advent, and in the three-year lectionary, uh, it's the Old Testament text for the second Sunday in Advent. And we'll talk in just a little bit uh, also how that's commonly connected to us hearing about John the Baptist who prepares the way. And as we dig into the text, we'll see that language uh, very fitting for that Sunday focus. And so in the three-year John the Baptist focus comes uh, in series B uh, on the third Sunday in Advent, uh, but in the, or I'm sorry, the second Sunday in Advent in series B. And in the uh, one-year lectionary, it comes in the third Sunday in Advent. Um, we're going to come back to the context of Isaiah 40 in a second, but since you brought up that liturgical context, which is, I think, very helpful, particularly the one-year lectionary, especially as you use that there, this text shows up, as you said, on the third Sunday in Advent, which is, if to use the, the language of the Advent wreath, that's the pink candle Sunday. That is the Sunday for joy, this reprieve in the midst of a penitential season. You get this outburst of joy what makes a text like Isaiah 40 particularly fitting for a Sunday with that emphasis? Yeah, absolutely. And also we can bring in the colors uh, there too. The, the historic colors are uh, violet or purple for the season of Advent. A lot of our congregations have moved to using the royal blue and that kind of brings a different emphasis. But that that violet we also see show up in Lent, of course, and it again does focus us on the penitential season. We we are living under the judgment of God upon sin. And yet we get this brief re reprieve. Uh, the old Latin for it on that third Sunday is Gaudete, which is uh, you know, the first words of the introit for that Sunday. And uh, it, it's rejoice, you know, it's a, it's a time of joy in the midst of all the penitence and God's judgment uh, and wrath upon sin, that yet we have this, this joy and the hope that is ours. And that's, that's really where the blue tends to come in too, is, is that um, uh, the, there was a shift historically in the church to kind of make the Advent season a season of hope, which isn't wrong. I'm not against it by any means. Um, but uh, uh, once again, you have that hope. Uh, directed to the coming Savior, that the Lord will deliver you, God will save you. Uh, and so uh, Isaiah, just, yeah, a beautiful text for us to come on that Sunday of joy that focuses us on what our joy is in, namely the hope of a Savior, that God's judgment will not last forever. So with that, the uh, to go back to the context then of Isaiah 40, which I think fits well in the midst of a season of repentance and hope, looking forward, expectation, you get this Sunday of joy, comfort, looking for something, and Isaiah is going to announce that something, someone is coming. And as you laid out the book of Isaiah as a miniature Bible, chapters 1 through 39 being having one emphasis, chapters 40 through 66, you know, focusing, going together as a unit as well, we get the chapter, or at least the very first part of that chapter, where that transition is made. So help set that context within the book. What's the transition that's being made? What's the move Isaiah is making here in chapter 40? Yeah. So the uh, once again, the first 39 chapters, uh, he lays out the coming judgment. And it's important to note there too, that uh, this is especially a modern context setting for us as well, that when Isaiah is making or, or doing his prophetic work, when he's making his prophecy uh, about the coming judgment of God, especially in those first 39 chapters, uh, it truly is prophetic. It, it's taking place before or it's coming before it takes place. Remember that Isaiah was an 8th century BC prophet and probably wrote the book of Isaiah in the middle of the 8th century uh, but the conquest of the Babylonians over Judah doesn't come until the 6th century BC. Uh, that's when Judah and Jerusalem were conquered by the Babylonians and its population was exiled to Mesopotamia. Uh, 
And so, uh, and, and of course in BC, it counts down to zero. So eighth century is earlier than sixth century in BC. So this talk of judgment sounds really quite harsh because although there are the daily struggles of life in the sin broken world, and there's always the threat of war, even as we see in our own day, at the time of Isaiah's prophetic ministry, there's no clear and present threat against Judah or Jerusalem uh, going on. In fact, at the time of his prophetic ministry, times are really reasonably pretty good in Judah, which is probably why his words tend to fall on deaf ears and probably why, although we don't specifically know the manner of Isaiah's death, Jewish tradition does hold that he suffered martyrdom by being sawn in two under the orders of Manasseh. We don't have biblical evidence for that, but we do have uh, um, extra biblical evidence for that. And so then, uh, you know, Isaiah is is speaking these harsh words of judgment in chapters 1 through 39 to a people who have really grown complacent in their life. Life is pretty good. And I think, once again, that certainly has contemporary applications for us as we think about our own lives and the work that we're called to do in announcing the good news of Christ who comes as a savior. And it's like, well, a savior from what? Things are pretty good. I mean, yeah, we've got this global pandemic and we've got things going on, but really, I mean, things are pretty good for us. We have comfortable lives. And so we don't necessarily awaken to our situation and what's coming. Um, and, and so it's good to, in, in the context of Advent, once again, to continue to sound this message, hey, the day of judgment is coming. And uh, we, you can only prepare, be prepared for that by faith uh, in, in the gospel, the hope that is delivered to you. And so that's where Isaiah 40 begins. Then it's that part two, the second book of Isaiah, it brings in the hope, the gospel, the fulfillment of what God will do to save his people. And, uh, in a lot of ways, this is a, a new Exodus for the people of Israel. Remember, uh, back in the, uh, Exodus, uh, coming out of Egypt, they were delivered by God, uh, through the Red Sea, saved, right? Brought to the promised land. Uh, and that's Zion, that's Jerusalem. That's that's the place that God has for his people. And so as they are taken off in judgment um, to captivity, this, this second part of Isaiah talks about the return to Zion, return to the promised land. And so in a lot of ways, it's really a new exodus for the people. And so... Um, yeah, definitely a, a word of comfort here comes immediately in Isaiah chapter 40, following all of the judgment and uh, uh, and God's wrath coming upon them for their sin in the first 39 chapters. Now we're going to start to see, okay, but what's your hope even after that, even though you may be rejecting the message in its own day? Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. The prophet writes, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That is the text for today, Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. Those first words, Pastor Smith, I think are very familiar to us, used in a well-loved hymn 
in many Lutheran churches, as well as Handel's Messiah. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Why this double comfort right away in the beginning of chapter 40? Well, yeah, I, I just first want to comment on uh, well-loved him and then also uh, Handel's Messiah. I always comment because, again, it comes to us every year in the, the one-year lectionary. But uh, every year I read that myself in church, I, I'm just so tempted to sing it, right? Uh, which, which is maybe just a beautiful uh, kind of connection to the words that actually come right? To that beautiful oratorio, especially from uh, Handel's Messiah, right? Is that, uh, you know, th- these, these are words of comfort that come after all of the judgment spoken of in chapters 1 through 39. Ah, what a beautiful, peaceful thing. Comfort, right? It's just, you, yeah. you just want to sing it. And that's what comes in here then, right? This, this double comfort to my people as the people have realized their sin, that their land is lost, their temple and worship have been destroyed. You know, the, the very physical dwelling place of God is no longer in their midst. That, that has always brought them comfort. In the, in the first Exodus, the tabernacle, they would see the pillar of uh, fire by day and the, or, or the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, right? Dwelling over the tabernacle in the very midst of the camp, the physical presence of God brought them comfort and assurance. Their God is with them. And they, whenever they were in doubt, wandering there in the wilderness, does God still love us? Is he still with us? Is he leading us to the promised land? They would look to that very physical representation and know, ah, I have God with me. And that brings comfort. It brings peace. It brings assurance. And so as they're taken off in exile, judgment upon the sins of them as a nation, God speaks to them this word of comfort and says, no, your God is still with you. This, this is really a, a great message of consolation and care. Of course, it presupposes that the divine judgment has brought them to their repentance. Once again, you can think back to the first Exodus, right? The, the snakes are sent to bite them and they're dying. They they're, you know, whoa, what's going on here, right? You know, uh, we better wake up to our condition. Moses, call out to God and, and uh, let, let him save us, right? And he lifts up the bronze serpent on the pole in the midst of the camp, and all who look to it are saved. John 3 brings that in. That's Christ lifted up on the cross for us. I mean, uh, again, it's just such a comforting, consoling message that he brings to his people. He is their God. They are his people. And as even Romans picks up this idea, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? And and what consolation, what comfort that does bring us? Yeah, the and and that takes us right into verse two because I mean the reason that there's the need for this comfort is because the warfare is over, the iniquity is pardoned from the Lord's hand. She has received double for all her sins. the The time of judgment that was so prevalent in chapters 1 through 39, although there were notes of hope. And chapter 35 particularly brings one of those notes of hope, and you're talking about the singing, and and you've got singing there in chapter 35. So I think it's it's very appropriate that we would sing a text like this. But all of that, that judgment, that time has come to an end, and now the Lord is bringing his promised salvation by, by coming to be with his people. And when he comes, there is comfort because of all of the things that he lists there in, in verse two, take us into that verse. Yeah, so he he's here speaks a word of forgiveness connected to that comfort. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, he says, and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Or you could also, uh, you know, translate that as accomplished. Right, all all has been accomplished to deliver this comfort to you. That's a word of forgiveness, and and also we should note here too that. Uh, you know, a lot of times there's a confusion over she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Again, that presupposes that there is judgment. I mean, there there is suffering and punishment upon their sin, their lack of repentance, their lack of trust in God. Uh, that's that's a part of their experience. But I, I found this interesting that as I was looking and preparing for this, we should also understand this as a Hebraic idiom, right? It's actually conveying something more going on to us, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Doesn't mean that the Lord is being severe with them. 
and um you know kind of bringing double punishment because they've been so wicked uh that's that's not the level of the wrath actually and and i'm taking this uh from a commentary called insights on the book of isaiah it says in those times if a man was hopelessly in debt and unable to make payment it was the custom for a creditor to write out a statement of his indebtedness that would be nailed to the door of the debtor's house and all who passed that way would know that this was a man who was bankrupt the extent of the debt was there for all to see for it is written on parchment paper but if the debtor had a wealthy friend or someone who would come and pay the debt for him he would go to the creditor and say i'm prepared to accept responsibility for this man's indebtedness and pay you fully immediately the creditor would go to the house of the debtor and cancel the amount of debt on the parchment by folding it over and sealing it on the door the parchment was folded over double and sealed that is the meaning of receive from the lord's hand double for all her sins this is a word of forgiveness this is what christ ultimately does for us right that uh he he, do, he makes the payment he wins our redemption for our sins he covers our debt that's what he does on the cross and so this is the tender word spoken to jerusalem is that your debt for your sins has been covered and you're no longer at enmity with god you are at peace the war is over and it's also important important to note here then too that cry to her that her war for warfare has ended is, or is ended or accomplished this is very specifically the work of an evangelist in the very strictest sense of the term in the ancient world they were literally to go throughout the town or an empire to announce the good news that is related to victory and war or peace you know a runner would be sent to say hey we won the battle you right and th and that's that's an evangelist he's telling the good news from the the front lines of the war or from the battle right and we see this also right away in mark's gospel uh chapter one verse one it says the beginning of the gospel or good news of jesus because even still at the time of the first century of the roman empire it was it was a common term even still then and it literally meant good news that was announced with the peace that comes with a new emperor it was a declaration uh that a new ruler had taken up his throne who would at least hopefully bring justice peace and the good life to the empire and so for israel that is god's people it was the good news of yahweh's their god's arrival to set things right in the world bringing true justice true peace and a new life to the creation and this is reflected several times in isaiah and picked up at least by the evangelist mark as he begins his gospel that's the good news that is going to be announced or is announced in the arrival of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Hmm. I think we've we've kind of lost some of that picture of the matter of, you know, warfare being over in our world today. It, it seems like there's always fighting happening somewhere, and there's not that same experience of jubilation when warfare is over. But maybe in our in our historical pictures that we've received from, say, World War One or World War II, you can think of some of those images of people celebrating when they learned that the war was over and, and just the total joy that's there in the streets. That's that's the kind of message that is being announced here in Isaiah chapter 40. And really throughout the book of Isaiah, we see this picture when you picture the, oh, it's in chapter 52, which we'll look at later in this series because that's one of the Christmas Old Testament readings of the the feet that are bringing the good news. And you get this picture that people are watching for this messenger to come, this evangelist to come with this good news that God has won the war. He's won and the victory is yours as well. And that just extreme joy comes through loud and clear. And, and then as you were saying about the receiving double from the Lord's hand for her sins, I think you're exactly right. This is not a matter of double punishment, like she was pun punished twice as much as she deserved, but rather this is a double comfort. And the image you gave there with the debtor is, is I think, spot on. The Just the very beginning of the chapter, comfort, comfort, a double comfort is spoken here at the beginning of the chapter. Other, other, when, anytime this happens in Hebrew, where you see this, this doubling of a word, it, it's an important thing. In my mind, to, to tie it to this context, Psalm 32 starts very similarly and you're talking about the forgiveness of sins. 
So Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And then verse two, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. A double blessing to the one who is forgiven, double comfort to God's people receiving this good news that their warfare is over because God has come. And we're going to hear more about the herald who brings that good news, who prepares the way in verse 3, which we will pick up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around. In 2020, the world was blindsided. At the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, we quickly refocused on how to best serve the church. Our COVID-19 response team took action, reaching out and listening to our borrowers. In response, we offered a number of financial remedies that allowed our borrowers time to stabilize. We also provided online streaming kits for churches, gift cards for food pantries, financial support for LCMS church workers, and much more. Life's not yet back to normal, and that's why we're still here for you. Visit lcef.org to learn more. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, December 9th. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. We've got Pastor Sean Smith with us. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in West Point, Illinois, and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Wine Hill, Illinois. Pastor Smith, prior to the break, we looked at verses 1 and 2 of the chapter. In verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet writes, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And again, we've got more familiar words because we hear this during Advent, and as you said earlier in the program, it gets connected to John the Baptist. Take us into verse 3. Yeah, so, you know, with that message to proclaim the good news, to speak tenderly, the voice actually comes to speak that good news, right? And this, this voice comes crying out there in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight uh, in the desert a highway for our God. This is the voice of forgiveness immediately uh, followed by the voice of deliverance, right? So we hear that voice of forgiveness and then how that deliverance is going to come to you. And so the writers of all four gospels refer to Isaiah 40 verse three as related to John the Baptist. And so once again, very fitting that in the three-year lectionary series, series B, and in the historic one-year lectionary uh, on um, Advent three there, that this is always connected with the gospel readings that we get where we focus our attention on John the Baptist, who is come to prepare a highway for our God, right? And he'll specifically uh, lay that out in the next two verses here, verses four and five. So we've heard this image from Isaiah previously. Again, in chapter 35, the image of a highway is there, and that comes back here in chapter 40. And the picture in this highway is that there's all kinds of obstacles in the way that need to be put away with. The The mountains need to be brought low, the valleys need to be lifted up so that this way can be traveled. Take us into this picture that Isaiah gives us, that this voice will give, and then what's the point of this picture? Right. So this is the the method of delivery, right? Or, or, or rather what the deliverance is. And so, uh, you know, the way back from Babylon, where they're in exile to, to Judah, um, uh, is about a 30-day journey. I'm getting this from the commentaries, of course. I don't have personal experience of that. Uh, but it's through the desert, over mountains, and through valleys, right? That's the geographical terrain there in between Babylon and Judah. And so the, the journey would have seemed impossible. But when God takes them in his hand to deliver them, to bring them back, this second exodus, right? He's going to straighten out the way for them, just like he did in the first exodus, right? He's going to lead them on their way back. And um, this, this is a really important image for us of what the gospel does and how our Lord saves, right? He he. He smooths out the way for us. He he's the one who prepares the highway. It's this this isn't the work of a civil engineer or anything making literal highways in the wilderness or leveling mountains and filling valleys, right? Or building bridges across, right? Uh, John the Baptist fulfilled these words by preaching the powerful message of repentance for sin and and 
coming in repentance and trust in Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He points people to Jesus. He, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the one whom John the Baptist is pointing to is, and by the way, John the Baptist is doing this out in the wilderness, right? He's saying, he's the one who prepares your highway. He's the one who leads you back to God. Follow him. And, uh, you know, of course, as John the Baptist also talks about, right, you know, he must increase, I must decrease. That That's where our focus is. That's where our salvation is. It's directed to Jesus. So and I think that takes us then to verse 5, because as this way is prepared, the valleys lifted, mountains made low, uneven ground is smooth. All of it is done so that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And as you said, John comes pointing to Jesus so that in Jesus, we would see the glory of the Lord. In fact, all flesh would see it, as Isaiah says. How how do we see in Jesus this glory of the Lord revealed, Isaiah's prophecy made plain? Well, John chapter one makes it beautiful for us, right? That uh, the for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What does John one direct us to? Well, it's the word of the Lord, right? Jesus Himself, who takes on human flesh. That's the that's the nativity scene that we get in John's gospel. Is that the word makes its dwelling in human flesh among us? That's that's the whole picture of Christ coming to us as our Messiah. He is the very voice of deliverance, if you will, that takes on flesh. And all see it. You actually see him. He's a real physical being. He takes on human flesh. He becomes like us in every way except without sin. And uh, and the, the angels announce his birth. Of course, we get that in Luke's gospel. Uh, and, and the shepherds and wise men come to worship at him. And, and we, we see God's work in human history taking on flesh and blood among us. I'm glad you pointed us particularly to John's gospel there at the beginning, because in addition to what he writes in that first chapter about the word becoming flesh, this idea of the glory of the Lord being seen in Jesus is really present throughout his gospel. And later on in his gospel, Jesus will specifically connect his glory to his crucifixion, which is not our human understanding of glory, but it is how we see the glory of God revealed most fully. And I think I think Isaiah would invite us to see that picture here in chapter 40 as well. You know, we we associate this text with Advent, and rightly so. And we're thinking of baby Jesus, the beautiful nativity scene. And yet we always, anytime we see our Lord in the flesh, we always have to look toward his death for us sinners on the cross. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, really you said, you know, we, we see it also in the cross. When when does Isaiah get to get used most often in the church here? Well, of course, here at Advent, right? And connected with Christmas, but we also see him show up a lot in Lent, right? And Good Friday and Easter. That it's, Once again, Isaiah is a whole, a whole picture of the story of redemption, right? It's a miniature Bible, which is uh, focusing us on Christ. And so I think that's really important to pick that up on. And once again, we reflect this even in our worship that, uh, you know, we would genuflect in the creed when Christ takes on that human flesh, right? When we talk about the incarnation in the creed, uh, we generally genuflect, at least historically, and and it's good to teach children this practice as well, that we we bow or kneel at that point, uh, recognizing that Christ's glory has come among us, as John 1 teaches us. But then also, um, when do we raise up from our genuflection in the creed? When do we stop kneeling and stop bowing? Well, it's at, at Christ's exaltation, which is at the words that he was crucified, which is a little different than we tend to think. Right, we tend to think that that comes later at his ascension or or, or his resurrection, maybe. Right, uh, that that's when Christ's exaltation comes. But no, his exaltation is when he is crucified, and that's when we raise up from our genuflection in the creed. And so, it's really important to get that connection here. Right, that once again, this is the true uh, message of Christ's exaltation. His true glory come among us is that he comes to deliver to us that tender word from God, the forgiveness of our sins, and to deliver us from our sins, ultimately to the promised land of heaven. 
And, and that's the work of Christ for us. And you're going to see this theme all throughout Isaiah's, um, uh, I almost called it a gospel, but we tend to call Isaiah the gospel of the Old Testament. Uh, but all of Isaiah's book, right, is that the suffering servant that Isaiah talks about is ultimately Christ, our Messiah as well, right? Sure, yeah. I mean, Isaiah is sometimes called the fifth evangelist. We've mentioned that previously in studying him, and and rightly so. He sees Christ so clearly in the Old Testament that to refer to him as the gospel according to Isaiah, it, it just seems quite natural, and, and certainly here as well. So as the text continues in verse 6, we have another voice. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? And here, this voice that cries, as Isaiah cries, you see the the utter futility of human flesh and the way that what we do, what we put together doesn't last, but there is something that stands forever. Take us into, it's particularly verses six through eight, Pastor Smith. Yeah, absolutely. You can make connections to Ecclesiastes and also, I mean, even the, the uh, teaching ministry of Jesus makes reference to this theme as well, right? He uses the the flowers of the field and, uh, you know, things that are here today and gone tomorrow. And that is our existence in this sin-broken world, right? And yet the announcement of that good news, right, to, to cry out, to proclaim the good news that uh, you are delivered from that futile existence, and I think that's really important connection for us in seeing our deliverance in that way, right? That that's the good news that we pronounce to people. I mean, you talked about in the first half there, and I thought that was a really excellent thing to bring in is that, you know, we don't really think of this in our modern context anymore, right? We don't announce the end of wars. I mean, we have children of people who served in Iraq and Afghanistan now going off and still serving in Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, it's just like an endless war, right? And we never really, I mean, yeah, Vietnam came to an end and things like that, uh, even Korea, but you don't see, you know, quite the celebration of the end of those wars that we saw at the end of World War One and World War II and, and all sorts of previous wars as well, right? And, and so we don't have this anticipation of it's over, it's finally over, the, the, the victory has been won. And, you know, I kind of even think about this, you know, not to just get completely contemporary in this thought, but I think this is kind of magnified for us with the pandemic going on. And, you know, what if we all of a sudden came out and said, it's finally over. We have beat COVID. You don't have to worry about lockdowns anymore. You don't have to worry about, um, you know, getting sick from this and isolating and all the sorts of things that are going on with this. I, I mean, in a lot of ways, the pandemic can serve to to bring to the forefront of our minds exactly what we should always have, which is the frailness of our bodies because of sin. And yet our Lord delivers to us a word of comfort and hope of forgiveness and deliverance that he is coming to deliver you from this. And that's what the voice is crying. It's over. It's done. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Uh, Christ has come. He has taken care of this for you. And and the voice that cries has the word of God that stands forever as its basis. You know, I, I too wonder if if a voice were to cry suddenly tomorrow or or today that the pandemic is over, you don't have to worry about masks and isolating and all those things. How many people would believe it? How many people would would say no? I, I, that's fake news or something like that? Yeah, Twitter and Facebook well, we, would censor it for sure. Sure, exactly. And so we have in this voice that cries in, in Isaiah, a, a word that stands forever, a word that is sure that can be trusted and, and can be trusted even as I see you know, my own flesh decaying, even as I see death surround me in, in the very midst of life, snares of death surround me, even as I see all of that and I, I experience it in my own flesh, I've got this word that stands forever that brings me comfort in the midst of it that I can trust. You know, I mean, it, 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 for a second, when you're reading these verses, you're like, well, Isaiah, you're supposed to be preaching comfort to me. And here you're telling me I'm going to die. Where's the comfort in that? Well, it's in the fact that despite the fact that I'm going to die, the word of God stands forever. And that when I hear my sins are forgiven, my warfare is over, the victory is mine, and Christ will return and raise me from the dead, that's true. And I can, I can rest in that. 
And if I might pick up on that just for a second, too, I think this is important to connect once again to the life and ministry of Isaiah itself, right? It's this not just a modern thing that social media would flag that as, you know, fake news, you know, uh, well, you know, it's not really over, you know, we, there's still, you know, uh, work that has to be done, or uh, it's only 90% effective, and some may still die, you know, those sorts of things would get promoted out there. But that's what happened even in the day of Isaiah, too. That, that's literally what Manasseh did, once again, when, according to tradition, when Isaiah was martyred, he basically said, Isaiah is promoting fake news, and I'm going to end him. I'm going to silence him by sawing him in half, right? And, and yet, Isaiah, his prophetic ministry is vindicated and its truth is grounded in the word of God, which endures forever. You can't silence it. You can saw them in half. You can put them to death, but you can't silence the true word of God, which will always bring the vindication of its message by actually delivering it. And that's what we see when John the Baptist jumps on the scene and he begins preparing the way. Once again, they put John the Baptist to death. They label him as fake news, right? Oh, we don't have to repent of anything. Uh, uh, we don't need to work. We don't need a savior. We've got life pretty good under the Roman Empire here, right? Uh, yeah, sure, it's not all that great, but it's pretty good. And you know, life is good. But no, uh, you can't silence it, and it's always vindicated. And God actually accomplishing His work, and all those who turn to it and believe in it and trust in it will ultimately endure unto life everlasting. The vindication brought about by the faith that we have, and and in that vindication, now then. We, we also speak this good news. And, and so in verse 9, as, as Isaiah continues, you get more of this matter of, of crying out this good news. You know, we've, we've had the voice crying in verse 3, a voice that says cry in verse 6, and now in verse 9, both Zion and Jerusalem are also called to be heralds, to proclaim this good news. Take us into the way that Jerusalem and Zion start to participate in this proclamation in verse 9. Yeah, absolutely. Once again, when you have that good news of your deliverance, of how you are saved, you want to tell everybody about it. You, you want, I mean, once again, if the end of the pandemic and lockdowns and wearing masks and all those sorts of things, I mean, right now I'm under a 24-day quarantine, right? I just want out of here. And you better believe the minute I can, I can with any assurance say, I'm out of it, right? I'm going to be so happy I'm going to go up on the mountains. I'm going to sing about it. I'm going to talk about it. Right? This, this would be the natural reaction to such good news, right? And that's exactly what we're invited to do, right? Go up on a high mountain, sing this, let it echo throughout the mountains, you know, kind of like calling out Ricola and let it echoing through the Alps or something. I don't, but uh, you know, like let, let your voice carry and carry and echo and go throughout all of the world, Right lifting up that you have nothing to fear. This is a testimony that is worthy to be sung. And so I think it's really quite beautiful that Handel's Messiah classically, our hymns, uh, they echo this good news as well. And we should learn these hymns and sing these hymns uh, so that we too may make this good confession of the good news that has come to us, right? That we are delivered. We have nothing to fear. We don't have to hide behind things or be in isolation. Uh, our sins cannot be held against us anymore. You have forgiveness and deliverance in your God. This should be sung and shouted from the mountains and let it echo throughout the world. And so often Christians, we tend to lose our confidence in the gospel, right? And and that's kind of, you know, what you were saying about, uh, you know, the wars. And we, we just don't have that joyful exultation. There's no end to the wars anymore. I think our our kind of understanding is that the best that we can do in this world is just kind of endure to just kind of get through it. Right. Um, we don't, we don't look forward to the end of anything. And so we, that leads to a lot of complacency. And I think that that's what happened for Judah and the people of Israel in the old Testament. Uh, we certainly saw it at the time of Jesus's coming that, that not all responded to the message of John the Baptist, you know, preparing them for the advent of our God, the coming of our savior and it happens to us again today. But we as Christians, the more we come to recognize the truth of the deliverance that we have, the truly good news that it's over. You don't have to wear the mask anymore. You don't have to be fearful. It's, it's all over and you are delivered. Then we too 
will be emboldened to go out and lift up our voice, even if they try to silence us, even if they try to cut us off, which is coming and we see it ever more in our own society, even here in the United States again, but we don't have anything to fear. We can continue to announce this good news, even in the face of death, because ultimately the vindication of our message is grounded in the truth of God's word, which endures forever. That's worthy of being announced from the mountains and being sung. That's right. Zion hears the watchman singing, Philip Nikolai oh, yeah. writes. Right? I, you know, and, and that's just such a striking image that the, the watchmen are singing this good news. They're so thrilled. And and I've always connected that in that in the hymn Wake Awake for Night is Flying, with the moment in the divine service where the pastor is speaking the proper preface, the one that is proper to the season. And he ends, therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, I mean, that's what the text says to say is saying, but then what do the people do? They sing and, and they sing. I mean, I think this is, what are they singing? They're singing precisely what Isaiah is inviting Jerusalem and Zion to sing here. Behold your God, your God comes. And that's what's happening right there in the divine service is that our God comes to save, to deliver his body and his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And at a moment like that, you can't help but sing. And certainly there's a matter of endurance to this Christian life, no doubt. It's all over the scriptures, but it is a joyful endurance. We talked about this yesterday with Pastor Wolfmuller on Isaiah 35. It's the type of joy that can sing hymns in prison with Paul and Silas. And, and that joy, I mean, it's all over Isaiah and it, it should mark our lives as Christians still today. Absolutely. And I love that you brought in the divine service there. My mind was going there too. And especially as you connected it to those words, behold your God, right? What's happening right there, right? It's, it's your God who has come among you and the bread and the wine. It's his true body and blood that would strengthen you in the true faith and body and soul unto life everlasting, right? That's your God that's come among you. Are, are you threatened by your sins? Are you worried about your sins that maybe heaven isn't for you, right? Well, behold your God. This, this is good news for you. Look, look to him right there on the altar for you, his body for you, his blood for you for the forgiveness of sins, right? It's just like the people in the Old Testament. It's just like John chapter three, right? God comes and he makes his dwelling among us. And whenever we're in doubt in the midst of this world that is just completely falling apart around us and we're wandering in the wilderness of this world, right? We look to our God who is in the very midst of us and we're, we're giving comfort. We're, we, our confidence is renewed, right? And we have the assurance our God is going with us and he is going to lead us to our ultimate deliverance. What a beautiful, beautiful connection for us that we get to experience every single Sunday in the divine service as God makes his dwelling among us. And that's worth meeting no matter what's going on in the world, because that's the very comfort that we need. Those words from Isaiah in verse 9, behold your God, they get expanded in verses 10 and 11 as, as he continues, well, how does this Lord who you behold... What do you see him doing? And these verses have always struck me with the the dual image that you get with what the Lord does with his arm. In verse 10, his arm is ruling with great power. And yet at the same time in verse 11, that same arm is is carrying and gathering his lambs very tenderly. Pastor Smith, we've got about four minutes here to, to wrap things up with these two verses. Yeah, well, so that is an interesting dual image there, right? Is that, you know, his arm is mighty, which is really important when you've been conquered by a mighty nation like the Babylonians, and then later the Assyrians, right, take over that. At, or, um, uh, yeah, the Assyrians, right? The Assyrians would have been contemporaries with Isaiah, and then the Babylonians are going to be the ones that actually right. take Judah off. Yeah, right. yeah, got it. Sorry, I had things reversed in my mind. But yeah, so the Babylonians, right? They're a mighty empire that conquers uh, Israel or Judah and takes them off into exile, right? And so uh, we get this image again in the Gospels, right? Jesus says, you know, unless you bind the strong man, right, uh, you can't take his house. And so God comes in and he's the stronger man. He delivers his people with his mighty arm. And yet he comforts his flock. Beautiful image to compare to Psalm 23, 
really in all of it, right? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Well, that, that rod and the staff, you know, for the shepherd, it, it, you know, it chastises, it brings, it wakes, you know, you bop the sheep on the head and get them to wake up, right? And, and come back to, to the shepherd where there's safety, but yet they also lead in the comfort and safety that the shepherd gives. And that's once again, our God who is with us. This is the very character of our good shepherd. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He's the tender shepherd who's, you know, bringing this good news, this comforting news to Israel and still delivers it to us today. And so if in our life, once again, if things are just desperate, we're in a desperate sense of failure, we see the world falling apart around us, right? Uh, we, we have the great comfort of our God who dwells with us, who comforts us in the forgiveness of sins and his deliverance. With just two minutes, Pastor Smith, help us wrap the entire text up and give us your parting thoughts on the morning. Well, once again, this is a very fitting text for the season of Advent and is a little microcosm, a whole summary of the entire story of redemption that we see present throughout the Bible, right? We, we live in the midst of a world that has fallen in sin, and yet the good news comes to us that even though there is judgment of God upon that sin, even though we will experience suffering and pain and sorrow in this life, it's not going to last forever. Your God comes to you. You are still his people. And I think that's something that we didn't bring out earlier, but is important to bring out here is that you are his people. He speaks those very important words that you, and it's a collective term, are my people. You're not forgotten. And he comes to you to deliver you. And that's ultimately what the advent of our God is all about. First in the coming of Christ, but especially ultimately at his second coming, his glorious coming in victory and triumph, when all of this will be done away with forever and we are delivered from our exile and sin to the promised land of eternal life with him forever. What comfort there is in that message. Pastor Sean Smith is the pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in West Point, Illinois, and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Wine Hill, Illinois, also the host of Concord Matters here on KFUO, helping us this morning with Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Pastor Smith, thanks for being our guest today. My great pleasure to be here with you. Comfort. Comfort is the news of this Advent season, the sins under which we have labored, the sins of which we are guilty, the Lord has pardoned. He has done so because he has come. Behold, your God, Jesus Christ, he is your Savior, born, crucified, raised, ascended, and coming again for you. That is good news. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.